Hello, everyone. Welcome to the CrocCast podcast. I'm your host, Nate, along with my co-host, Matt. Hey. And today we're joined by uh, alligator researcher, Dr. Mark Merchant. Mark, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Appreciate you having me. I enjoyed being here with you so far. <laughs> awesome. So, uh, Mark, you want to get started up uh, how you first got into reptiles and uh, how you, your career has progressed with your research with reptiles? <clears throat> Yeah, yeah. Um, it's funny. Uh, reptiles really didn't enter my career until what most could, we might consider late in the game. I was, um, as an undergraduate, I was a chemistry and biology major. And uh, I went to grad school at Texas A&M in College Station, Texas. And I got a PhD in biochemistry and had nothing to do with anything reptilian. I was doing human cell culture and doing some... Uh, Really, really kind of mechanistic biochemistry and molecular biology. Had nothing, it was all mammalian stuff. And, uh, but I grew up in the marshes of Southeast Texas, hunting in Southwest Louisiana, a lot of hunting, uh, a lot of fishing, catching frogs. That's, that's how I grew up. I grew up with, you know, webbed feet and, uh, a lot of time in the marsh. And I've always been fascinated with all critters in the marsh. You know, we got such a rich diversity of animals and such a great habitat down here. It's just beautiful. <clears throat> I've been around alligators my whole life and, I guess it's funny. I, I went to, to uh, a job interview with McNeese State University, which this was 22 years ago because I've, I've been there a little over 21 years. And and uh, and I had an idea. Uh, I had to give a, during my job interview. I had to teach a class and I had to give a research seminar of what my potential topics may be. And I gave two scenarios. I gave one. I said, you know, I'd like to do some genetic engineering. That's near and dear. I love genetic engineering. I've been doing that for a number of years, and I was pretty good at it. And I had this other idea because no one had ever really studied the immune systems of, of alligators or really any crocodilian <clears throat> much. And, um, but I can remember being in a, uh, Piro, uh, a small, kind of, if you don't know what a Piro is a small Cajun boat, it's like a canoe yeah. and paddling along the bank with my grandfather when I was, I was probably eight or 10 years old. And I remember as we paddled along the bank, we were fishing. And I saw this big alligator up on the bank. He must have been, he's probably 10 foot. At the time, he seemed like he was 20 foot. I was 10 years old, you know, in a canoe. And I remember he was missing a limb. He was missing uh, half his front uh, leg. And I remember thinking, what a tough animal. But then later on, you know, um, my professional curiosity uh, got the best of me. And it turns out that one of the, the at that research, uh, that job, offer that that job uh it wouldn't offer you that job interview i presented in addition to the genetic research and something about maybe looking to the immune system of alligators because you know how can they how can they live through literally getting a limb torn off and if you think about that that's a pretty serious bloody wound and you know i, I know when i'm out in the marsh if i just scratch myself on my boat i get infected it gets all puffy and red here they are losing you know they're losing limbs and the first question is you know how the hell do they not bleed out but secondly how do they avoid infection during that healing process so i thought they must have had something pretty special uh with respect to immu immunity so i just started uh, and i presented that and i ended up getting the job and uh my department head said what are you gonna do for your research program i said well i got that genetic he said you know what he said why aren't you looking at alligator stuff I said, that seemed really fascinating. I thought, well, you know, maybe, I don't know. Okay, maybe, yeah, okay. And I did. And, man, it did it take off. Boy, did it take off. 
and here I am 21 years later <laughs> still doing it. So That's awesome. So, yeah, uh, and, you know, I always tell kids, you know, you never can tell where you're going to end up. Um, it's funny when I, when I was in school, one of my things I really hated was immunology. <laughs> you got to be careful there. And now I've pretty much made a career out of a lot of immunology. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, go ahead, I, Matt. I was just, I was just going to say that, um, I all growing up, I thought being a teacher, like a professor was like the stupidest thing. Like I, I didn't understand why anyone would want to do that. But now I'm kind of starting to think uh, that might be a good career path for me and stuff to go. And I don't necessarily hate <clears throat> the idea, either, but growing up, I thought it was like the worst thing in the world. <laughs> I can tell you that was, I can tell you another story. <clears throat> Before I went to grad school, um, I was, I was a young kid, I was a young kid, I was 22, I was, I was probably 21, I was about a year from graduation, and um, I'm walking down the hall late in the afternoon, on Wednesday afternoon, and my, my research advisor pulled me in the, in the door, I said, like, hey man, what you doing? Not much, he said, hey, you got room for a chat? I said, yeah, so I came in his office, sat down, he goes, what are you going to do when you graduate? I said, well, I don't know, I was just thinking about, you know, we got a lot of uh, petro industry around here, it's a pretty hot area down here for, for uh, a lot, a lot of chemistry jobs. I said, I'm just going to go work on one of the plants and be a chemist. He said, well, there's nothing wrong with that, but have you ever thought about, you know, doing any research, like going to grad school or going to med school? He goes, your grades are good. And he said, you really, and I've been doing research in his lab. He said, man, you're really good at research. And you really, I mean, I'd be there at two o'clock in the morning as an undergraduate. Um, just love it. Never been of it, you know? And he said, have you ever thought about that? And I said, no. He said, well, think about it. So I did. And man, I tell you what, the more I thought about it, the more I liked it. So you know, you never can. That was a very defining moment in my life. That that got me into grad school. And then later on, the other defining moment was when my future boss or my current, my, my, my big, you know, at the beginning of my career, my academic career, my boss said, if I were you, I'd look into that alligator. That, that seemed pretty cool. You know, man, you don't know where, where that advice was going to come from. You just don't know. But my, like you said, Matt, um, being a professor, being an academic, still wasn't really in my mind even in grad school i was thinking i might go to work in a biotech firm so man like take what it serves you you know absolutely yeah absolutely so uh with your research with uh alligator immunology um what we say would be your uh biggest and or most uh surprising find so far <clears throat> um man there's a couple of them um I just think that uh, finding out that how broad acting their immune system is, it just it just seems to to work against all manners of bacteria, all manners of of fungi, and and there's just not a whole lot of microorganisms that alligators are extremely susceptible to when they're healthy. Of course, when they're immunocompromised or stressed, that can be different. So that was one of the things that was really surprising. How, how how broad acting their immune system is. Um, <laughs> so, you mentioned like when you were first thinking about uh, the how that alligator could survive losing a limb. Uh, you first mentioned how you thought uh, how they avoid all that blood loss. Um, and I know alligators and crocodilians in general have this really complex and interesting uh, circulatory system. So, uh, how exactly do they avoid blood loss when they 
lose an entire limb or like half a tail or something like that. Well, I think that I think one thing is I think that they, aside from their interesting, you know, their, their shunning of blood and stuff, I think it's really fairly unrelated. But I think they have a really high concentration of clotting factors in their plasma. Mm. Just a lot of clotting factors. And I also think that when they do suffer serious injuries, they have a lot of pretty serious vasoconstriction in that localized area that will... So in addition to a, a really good clotting system, they they tend to reduce the blood flow to that area so that they have a better chance to clot, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, go ahead, Matt. No, I was going to say, um, so... Um, and then, uh, what? So, what have you found so far? Like, if, like, did it have any kind of special immune system, or is it just like stronger? Um, <clears throat> well, they, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think that they have a lot of the stuff that we have, but okay. there's more of it. It maybe it's broader. Um, if you look at the mechanisms, one, one of their. So, let me say this. Um, if you look into basic immunology, you'll see that our immune system can be roughly divided into two components. And both of them are very complex and they both interact with each other. And one of them is called innate immunity. And innate immunity is not, uh, is, 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 is an older and more ancient immunity. It, it evolved, uh, it evolved when, when multicellular organisms evolved. I mean, hundreds of millions of years ago. And then adaptive immunity um, is more complex and more advanced. And it's how, you know, on current topics, it's how, uh, you know, vaccinations work. It's immunological memory. You expose yourself to something and, you know, your immune system takes care of it and, and, and you'll backlog some, some memory cells that will, next time they see that they, they quote unquote, remember it and they know how to react to it. And so, um, it turns out that more, you know, that like higher, higher vertebrates, like, you know, mammals have a more, uh, advanced adaptive immune system. Um, whereas more ancient vertebrates like fish and, and maybe reptiles, they have an adaptive immune system, but it's not as developed, mm. but what they really have is a very, very good innate immunity. And the innate immunity, um, isn't, it's not, uh, it's very broad. It has to be broad, if you think. It's not specific. It's very general. But you can't – it would be unreasonable to think that we, as, as vertebrates or you know, creatures on this earth, could uh, uh, develop an adaptive immune response to every single microorganism that we could ever encounter because there's just an infinite number of different kinds of viruses and I mean, that's why when some of this new stuff comes along, it can be trouble. But we don't, and so we rely on our innate immunity. Even humans rely on our innate immunity. So when, when you're first infected, infected with anything, you have this innate immunity that's circulating at the ready, and it kind of punches it in the mouth of that infection. It kind of slows it down while we, we, we can ad, uh, launch an adaptive response, and that, which takes two or three days. Um, but you know, with, with, with the alligators, they don't, they don't seem to have, they have a very, very, very strong innate immunity, very strong, very potent. And, um, 
The only thing I've found, well, I, I got to be careful here because I, I was about to say the only thing I've found that's more potent than the crocodilian innate immune system was that of Komodo dragons. And that it is, yeah. Uh, yeah, which makes a lot of sense if you, if you, if you think about, you know, the things they eat and, and the, the whole the bacteria in their mouth and all. Um, but I tell you what, I got some exciting new research from the last couple of days. Uh, and man, I tell you what, you know, it has a really, really super, I mean, amazing, like much more than the, than the, uh, than the, uh, Komodo dragon cotton mouth of all things. Oh. And I, and I am blown away by the, I, I, I did some experiments on Thursday, Friday, Friday. And I thought, no, Thursday is Thursday. And I thought, oh, that can't be right. I screwed something up. I added something wrong and something's wrong. And went back and did it again. And holy cow, man, is it. So we, we continued on Saturday and did some more experiments yesterday. And wow, I mean, zowie, that stuff is potent as, and those are just initial results you understand. But holy cow. Yeah. I mean, I mean, kind of makes sense. They're basically like a snake version of a vulture. So. Probably well, that's life. true, but but you know, there's a lot of things that live in that marsh are the same way. But you know, one thing I was talking to one of my colleagues about is one of the things about cottonmouths is yeah, they kind of they they will eat dead stuff like a lot of other snakes won't. They'll, they'll I've seen them. I saw a cottonmouth one try, one time trying to peel. I couldn't even tell what it was. It was like a dead fish on the road. It had been baked in the Texas sun on a on on. On literally had been run over by about a thousand cars. It looked like it'd been there three weeks in August. And the thing was, it was trying to get its jaw under there and peel it up off the road needed. Man, that's crazy. Well, you, and, you, and you, the other thing is, you know, I don't know if you get better on cottonmouths most, but cottonmouths will follow scent trails from dead animals and they'll 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 go toward dead stuff. Man, they're they're they got tremendous scavenging ability. So when you say like a snake version of a vulture. You're, I mean, it's it's, it's really right in, in more ways than one. Of course, in plus they'll they'll live feed, but but they like to eat a bunch of dead rotten stuff. It's crazy. But man, and I thought you, maybe that was part of it. I, I don't know. You wouldn't expect um, something venomous like a like a like a cottonmouth to to scavenge too like that. You wouldn't expect them to eat I, a lot of dead. You know, you're right, and yeah, because they have this specialized tool built in, right? All these, you know pits and you know venom and all but i i just feel like i i, I guess i've seen that several times with cottonmouths too um do you guys know uh, uh andrew austin yeah we've had him actually yeah. on the show before he'd recommend yeah, it to andrew, us. andrew and i've seen this andrew does a lot of work down here with me he's a, he's a good guy man i really like andrew but um yeah we talked about this now i just think they're i think they're kind of like Kind of like crocodilians. So, I mean, cro crocodile eat anything alive, but they'll eat dead stuff. They're they're the ultimate uh, opportunistic feeders. In any opportunity that comes along, they're gonna. You know, you, if you're if you're out there trying to live, you don't want to pass up an opportunity, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm um, and that's just a, an early guess on my part, and that's the scary thing when you come up with something really interesting like this. When you go to publish it, you gotta explain it. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> that can be problematic, you know. Um. So I, I don't remember. I think it was a guest that we had on here. Um, it might not have been, but they were talking about um, Komodo dragon venom and why it's not as it, it oh. kind of comes out of like glands in each uh, in each tooth, and so when they bite down, it'll kind of like come out into their saliva and um, and break down stuff. And that's for 
is because Komodo dragons will scavenge a lot, so they don't necessarily need it for that, but they'll grab like big deer, you know, that are alive and they can't really, they don't want to wrestle a big deer that might injure them so they can bite it. Yeah, like they'll, pick, they'll, eat, they'll bite those big buffaloes on the ankles and stuff and follow them around for three days till they die. They have those yes. big old buffaloes. Yeah. yeah, so they said, yeah, exactly. So he's there. Was, he was there. He was saying that um, because of that, their venom isn't as complex, it didn't um, evolve as complex as like a snake delivery system because it doesn't always need it because it scavenges a lot too. So it's, I'm that's super interesting with the cottonmouth. Like, do you think um, scavenging came after the, I guess it would come after the evolution of the venom delivery system? Like, maybe they didn't initially scavenge. And like, why would you think, man, I, you know, that's, that's a really great question. And that's one of the problems with me is I'm really, I don't, I don't consider myself a herpetologist. And for yes. years, I mean, because think about where I came from. I'm a biochemist and I'm working on molecular, human molecular genetic stuff. And then I jump into this, uh, a field work world, which is, I'm fine with field work. Cause I spent, like I said, spent my whole life in the marsh. But then, you know, my, the first, 10 years I've ever, I ever worked. I only did crocodilian stuff. I did alligators. I did caiman. I did, I was all over the world doing crocodile stuff. And I always said that, you know, I'd always start off with every professional, uh, with every professional, uh, presentation. You know, I, I want to remind you, I'm not, I'm not, I'm a biochemist. I am not a herpetologist, but now I've got, got kick, kicking and screaming into the world of snakes and turtles and lizards and, and I, I'm, I'm fascinated with ecology. I love ecology. My, the problem is I just, I'm not trained as an ecologist, so I don't understand it as well as like, people like you guys, you know, but it's, I love it. Um, and, and, and explaining some of the biochemistry and behavioral things we see in terms of ecology, sometimes it's difficult, like, like this one, like this problem right here, you know, I, did the venom come first? I don't know. That's a great question though. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know how to approach that. I know, yeah, so, right? Well, uh, yeah. So two points. Uh, that guest you mentioned, uh, Matt, that was, if I recall correctly, that was uh, Kent Vlight who brought that up. Kent okay. Vlight, yeah. yeah. Over in Florida, right. Yeah. It's good, man. Yeah, it was a really good time. I had a really good time talking to him. So now, He's a um, sharp cookie. I like Kent. And uh, second question, uh, you mentioned you did a lot of other research with other, some research with other crocodilian immunology. So, have you found like any differences in uh, potency and effectiveness of uh, um, across there's some across? there's some small differences there. I, it, honestly, the the biggest differences I find are differences um, in the thermal profile, the thermal efficiency, okay. because you know obviously I started with alligators, and alligators live in a very temperate climate with respect to other crocodilians. It gets quite cold here. It, uh, it, it you know, it, it, later this week, it's supposed to be 36 degrees in my house, 36 from Fahrenheit. That's from Fahrenheit. I don't know how many international listeners you have, but I apologize to them right now because Americans know nothing about the uh, <laughs> Celsius. But anyway, it's going to get down. It's going to get down to about three degrees centigrade uh, Celsius in my house this, this, this week. And, and, you know, most crocodilians don't live in areas where it gets that cold. And, uh, and so, you know, I go off and I start doing research, uh, down in South America and, and Brazil and, uh, in Argentina with the Cayman. And I went over with, uh, Matt Shirley and did some work over in, uh, in Africa on the West coast of Africa, which was really close to the equator. 
um, at Luongo National Park and some of the places over there. And uh, some stuff in Australia. And that's pretty hot. And the North End down there, I don't know if you've ever been there, it gets pretty hot. And so um, when you look at the thermal profiles, like, you, you know, you always do a thing where, where with an ectotherm, I always look at uh, the, the in vivo efficiency in, in the test tube. I do the assays at 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, and 40 degrees Celsius, which is the full range of, of temperatures that you would think that any, really any ectotherm would, would encounter. It's almost freezing to hot as hell, you know? So, um, and uh, I would see with alligators, I would see it more active at the lower temperatures, but at the really high temperatures, it would, it would dip down. So you would lose activity. Whereas you go down... And yeah, you go down and work in, in uh, you know, down in southern Mexico or Australia or even Africa. And uh, there, uh, it's lower, say, at 15 degrees than it is for the alligator, but it gets up to peak activity at 30, and it stays up there all the way up to 40. And it's just, it's just, uh, it, it's a, it's, it's a function of the, the the thermal environments in which these animals live. So it's, it's to me, it's like what you would expect. So, yeah, so alligators wait, just, are no, sorry. I just wanted to, just so I understand that, understood that correctly. Um, so they're in the States, they're more active in like a little bit more colder temperatures, whereas over in Australia, they're a little bit more active in hotter temperatures. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. so the thermal pro profile changes. So, you know, it, it, if you, if you look at all of them don't have, you know, none of them have really good activity at five degrees. That's really, that's like your refrigerators at four or five degrees. Right. And then you, as you start to go up to 10 and 15, the alligator has pretty good activity at 15, but for the animals that are more equatorial, the, the, the activity is, is much, much lower. I'm not saying they don't have activity, but it's not nearly as high there as the alligator. And then you go up to 30, 30 and the alligator peaks at 30 goes down a little bit at 35 and even down a little bit more at 40 because it never, I mean, where I live, hell, it never gets 40 hardly. The water certainly doesn't get 40. And, um, and so basically, uh, but those, those, those animals that live closer to the equator, these really hot environments, it's higher up at the higher temperatures. Their, their activity is higher. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And that, to me, that's kind of what you would expect. I mean, it's sort of, that's not hard to explain to me. I don't know if anybody believes it. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it's yeah, you're right. It, it's it's um it's what you'd expect, but it's still it's it still sounds like surprising when you first hear it that they'd be more active in a little bit colder temperatures, I guess. At least in the states. Well, but, but think about it, they have to I mean, a greater a greater portion of the year. Uh right. on, you know, in southern United States. I mean it it, it gets cold here. You know, it never gets that cold in coastal, uh, it, you know, in, near the equator or, or, or other places. It never gets even close to that cold. You know, down South Florida, if it gets down to, in the 40s, uh, you know, the iguanas start, uh, Fahrenheit, the iguanas start falling out of trees and crocodiles start dying and stuff goes crazy. Here it gets down. In, it, I mean, hell, we, we had a freeze this year where it got down below freezing for several days, which, you know, it's typical. Yeah, I, I live down in South Florida right now. Um, we always get like a week or two where it gets down to the high thirties, uh, low forties. And I, you know, man, I, how far down do you live, Matt? I live down in, um, Fort Myers, Naples area. So right at the bottom of okay. the West coast. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. And they, uh, but yeah, that we, you get weather alerts. I got a, I woke up to a weather alert on my phone saying, watch out for rain in the glass. 
So <laughs> uh, that's one of my new my, one of my new hobbies is go to Florida and uh, catch iguanas and skin them and and, and and bring them home and eat them. Oh, they're good. Me and uh, me and Nate. Oh, and they're fantastic. Yeah, me oh, and Nate did that. Um, we came down for a spring break trip before I moved down here, and there, yeah, we had a lot of fun with that. That was it's so much fun. I, I catch with my I catch with Mike Lorette down there, uh, down there, and with the croc. Well, he's down there at, at the at the power plant, you know. Okay. Oh. Yeah. We, um. Whenever I tell people about that too, that you know we did that because people ask me about the iguanas and stuff, and I'll tell them that we went and ate them. They're like, "What? Why would you do that?" It's <laughs> like. They're tasty. Yeah, yeah remember exactly. I'm a page and I'll eat I'll eat just about anything. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, chicken of the trees. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, they're yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, the chicken and the trees. They're good. Actually more like chicken of the canal, but yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I tell people too, I was like, you know, the back legs are the best because it has the most meat. I was like, but the tail, the, the tail doesn't really have much meat on it, which is opposite from an alligator and stuff, which is where you get most right. of the meat is the base of the tail. And you know they'll be like, "Yeah, I, I didn't know any of that, and I don't really care to know." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good stuff. Uh, so you mentioned you're starting to do some other research with other uh, reptiles other than crocodilians, like you mentioned with uh, cotton mouths, and you said you're dragged kicking and screaming into turtles and lizards and other. Yeah, stuff like yeah. That. Well, I went actually. Kent Lee uh, invited me to speak a number of years ago to a crocodile, uh, the CAG, the advisory group meeting. And it was in San Antonio. And um, I went and made a presentation on a lot of the stuff I had done, kind of an overview of some of the immunology I had done in, um, in, uh, in, in crocodilians. And I met uh, somebody, you probably know, Becky Musher. Uh, I do not yeah, know. She's her. at San Antonio Zoo, and, or Judith Breisha. Judith is uh, at the Houston Zoo. And they approached me after the meeting and said, wow, that's really cool stuff. Um, is there any chance you could do that in Komodo Dragons? I said, I don't know why not. You get me the blood and, and, and we're on to go. We end up publishing four papers. Then I was down in uh, down in Brazil uh, with Luciano Verdade, uh, one of my co collaborators down there. One of his students wanted me to do some stuff with him and turtles. So we did it and published that. And some like It's like, I can't remember what it was, but it was the equivalent of a South American slider, very common turtle. And then uh, I was approached by one of my colleagues now, one of my great colleagues now, Dr. Sarah Baker, who got her PhD up with the Illinois, uh, Illinois Natural History Survey. Uh, and she was doing Massasauga research up there in Southern Illinois. And um, she asked, well, you know, could you do this stuff in snakes? And I said, well, I don't, don't know why not. If you can get blood from it, I can do it, you know? So we ended up, um, we had a colony of captive uh, a long time captive by uh, prairie rattlesnakes and we end up publishing a, a, a series of papers. So I've done that and uh, we've expanded it. I've gotten into a little bit of uh, some snake fungal disease research with Dr. Matt Allender up there and he's been one of the big experts in that and Sarah is too. So I've, yeah, we've been diversified. I even, I even uh, did uh, a, a, a couple invertebrate papers. Uh, I did uh, probably one of the world's first uh, and only uh, scorpion immunology paper I published last year. And then, uh, I'm doing, believe it or not, uh, a dragonfly nymph uh, insect uh, uh, immunology paper is submitted right now. So, oh. uh, spreading myself too thin. Anyway, so I can't, I can't say 
I can't use I'm not a herpetologist as an excuse anymore. I've done a lot of herp, herp, herp stuff, but um, I just, I, I, I understand the biochemistry more than I do the ecology, but the ecology was really what's interesting to me. I love, I love the ecology of, 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 of uh, herps. It's really cool, really cool. And some of their special adaptations are just amazing. Do you, um, now that you're in the herpetology field, do you ever go herping now? I told Sarah I hate her guts because every time I see a snake or a turtle, I got to turn around and get it off the road. And I've <laughs> got to go back and identify what it is. I'm, I'm, I, I just, and you got to remember, too, I live in, a, I live in a, a, an area that's pretty rich in herbs down here. Because yeah. um, I got, you know, just to my north, I got the upland forest. Just to my south, I got the the, the the coast the, the coastal marshes and in between i've got the, the coastal prairie so I, i've got three major habitats within an hour drive and i'm, I'm in them a lot and you know, like last night we were going out to catch alligators i didn't think i was ever going to get out to launch my boat because i kept stopping looking at all the snakes and she's going that's the same snake we saw a mile and a half i said i know but it's a different one man <laughs> and i gotta get it off the road <laughs> Yeah, yeah I mean, it's addictive. It really is, and, and I, you know, I, I've grown to love the desert Southwest. I've, I've gone out there, herping with some friends. Uh, Trent Adamson. I'm sure you know Trent. You know Trent. I don't know if you know. He's really good. Uh, one of these hobbyist guys, but man, he takes phenomenal photos. He's one of these really good guys, snake guys, and um, we got we do have some cool research going out there. I got some cool research that's going on that's not also not not immunology related um, with other herps too, which is pretty neat. But, uh, and one of those is looking at the, looking at the cryptic color uh, background matching and the cryptic uh, uh, patterns of the speckled rattlesnakes in their different, different ranges. Hmm. And I'm sure you guys are, are, are aware that way down in South Arizona, you've got, those speckled rattlesnakes and those white mountains and they're white and you go up to Phoenix and they, uh, the same species occurs in pink granite mountains and they're pink. And then you go over and they're kind of that blue slate and they're blue. It's really cool. And man, do they, do their patterns match? It's amazing. So we're doing a lot of some heavy, heavy mathematical analysis and Fourier transform of the photos that we take. We're taking lots of photos of these things in the natural environment. We're doing a lot of background matching and we're, look, we're looking at, you know, all this cryptic patterning and stuff. Pretty neat. That is actually super neat. Mm -hmm. um, I love the desert Southwest. Yeah, I really oh, yeah. need to get back down there and go herping with Andrew again sometime. So, yeah. When you were back down here a couple weeks ago, were you, did you did you hang out with Andrew at all? Unfortunately, not. Nah. He was he's uh, he was busy moving into his uh, new place at the time, so I had to. I was only there for like two days, so. Yeah, well, he told me he he gave me a call the other day and he said, "Hey, I'm back in town because he just moved back back in my area. I'm ready to go because we got some diamondback terrapin trapping projects and we've got all kinds of snakes." So he goes, "I'm ready to get out the field." <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, Andrew's responsible for a, a very large percentage of my lifers. So. I'm telling you, man, Andrew. Andrew's just, he's a yeah, he's really he's really knowledgeable, but I love it because he's so open with things, and he loves teaching people. He loves learning, and he's he's always got. He just loves discussing. Whenever we go out cruising and stuff, and, and we're out in the marsh, we just you never can tell what we're gonna end up talking about. But I learned a lot from that guy. He's very knowledgeable. 
but very humble as well. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to circle back to something you mentioned earlier. Um, so you're talking about how, uh, like reptiles and older organisms will have a lot of strong innate immunity and, um, not as much adaptive, but like humans, we have a, a large amount of adaptive immunity and, um, less innate immunity. Do you, do you know, is there, um, a particular advantage to having more innate, uh, to less adaptive or vice versa? Do you know if there's an advantage to that? My, my guess would be, it would be better to have more adaptive, uh, immunity, but um, that may not be the case. Do, do you know? I, no, I, I believe, and I believe you're right, Matt. I believe that's 100% correct, but I believe that, uh, Adaptive immunity, maybe, uh, and my theory is that there are, there are energetic constraints of being an exotherm, right? Um, you know, you can't, you can't uh, manufacture your own heat necessarily. Well, I, I mean, there's all shades of gray. Some of them can to some extent, and there's a lot of research going on there. But, you know, you're, it, it, at some, to some extent, you're always... Uh, a slave to your environment in some ways thoroughly. And I think that I really think that the reason you see that the, the, the strong adaptive immunity in the endotherms is because they have a little bit of an advantage thermally. And I think that energetic constraints of exothermy maybe prevent uh, the adaptive immune response as we know it. Do you can um, with, so, you know, our body, you know, we're endotherms, so our body is maintained and it's a good incubation temperature for a lot of viruses, bacteria and stuff. Do Does that make us more susceptible to certain types of viruses as opposed to reptiles or, or any ectotherm for that matter? Well, I think that I think that usually the bacteria and viruses, one of the reasons that they are host specific is because they have evolved to be functional our body temperatures. In other words, okay. yeah, I got you. So, uh, you know, that, that's why part of the reason, not a, part of the reason why host, part of the host specificity of, um, of, you know, uh, of pathogens is that they, op they, they're op they operate optimally at the host uh, temperature, body temperature. Right. And right. so the things that, you know, will infect, us typically aren't the things that will infect them uh, but that's not always the case we know that like you know that we know that like say for instance crocodiles get chlamydia and it's not the same kind of chlamydia we get i mean it's not like sexually transmitted it gets in their eyes and stuff but it's also a different kind of strain of chlamydia that has all kinds of different thermal characteristics growth characteristics it just happens to be in the same genus so a lot of people get confused with by that but I really think that's part of the host specificity, uh, the, the, uh, the, the pathogen specificity for hosts is the thermal regime. Yeah, like I yeah. heard that uh, uh, reptiles and amphibians can't host rabies, the rabies virus, because their body temperatures is too low and rabies is very sensitive to lower temperatures. I, I wouldn't doubt that at all. I've never heard that, but I, I, I would believe that whole, yeah, for sure. Um, is it at all possible uh, for a an, an animal like a reptile that has um that's high in innate immunity and lower in adaptive immunity could they um increase 
their adaptive immunity ability or is is that going to pretty much stay the same like yeah i think that's coded genetically i believe i don't think that's something they can do epigenetically i don't that i know um, mm-hmm. i don't think they can like turn on an adaptive immune system when i, I i'm i've never heard of that i've never seen it i'm not I saying it's it. not true but I'm, I'm saying i'm unaware of that i guess okay you should never say never because just because i don't know about it doesn't mean it's not true for sure right exactly cool all right that's interesting yeah, that's a good question, though. I mean, that's a, I've never really thought about that. Well, I have thought about that. I've never, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a good, it's a good question. So, uh, as a side note, as a guy who enjoys uh, genetic engineering and working with alligators, uh, how many Jurassic Park jokes have you gotten over the years? <laughs> I'm not a big movie junkie. I've only seen the first one. I didn't see it the other day. I saw it again the other day. I'm not, I don't watch a whole lot of movies. <laughs> Let me tell you this. When I when I when I when I got up from from my couch an hour ago to come do this, I was grading exams and watching how the universe works. <laughs> oh, yeah, I I uh, was so I give kayak tours on the side and I was uh, talking to these people and we're in this mangrove estuary and I was explaining because a lot of people ask if there's alligators out there and um, I was explaining how. Uh, because of the location, there's a greater influx of salt water, so there's no gators in it, and um, all the all the crocodiles are on the on the east coast of Florida, um, which technically they're not all over there. But so someone said said that they're like, wait, but I thought I heard that there's some over here. I was like, okay, so technically there's six in the Marco Island Airport and two in Sanibel, but other than that, that's it. Bye. And, yeah. And yeah. I think don't they on on the west coast they move around more, don't they? The alligators or crocodiles? I, the crocodiles. As far so as far as I'm aware, I'm aware the the six in the Marco Island Airport are all females and it's a stagnant populate population. And so once they're they're gone, that's it. And from gotcha. my understanding, they're not trying to introduce males. And then the same with the um, the two in Sanibel, it's my understanding that they were they were found and then placed there, and then that that's and they're so they're just hanging out there because they were placed there, and then that's it. Okay, I thought I, I thought I'd heard one time that somebody say maybe Joe Wazalewski or somebody was saying that that I thought that the crocodiles on that west coast move make big uh, latitudinal movements up and down. Like if you find you may find them up way up. But then, you know, three would set their way down. So it's just short lived. So they they'll, they'll get short pulses, you know. That could be very that could be very well true. I was um like, I'm not I'm not an expert in that, but the crack, now that, crack now obviously that's, my, not a, that's not a, a, a population that but that these animals that you'll get these rogue animals that move way up and down the coast for a couple of weeks and just come right back down. I don't know. I don't know if they're looking to expand there and going, eh, I don't like that or yeah. what, but that's actually super interesting because, um, uh, well, so like I said, but crocodilians isn't like my expertise, but you know, living down here, you, you gotta, you gotta, you know, they're super interesting. Oh, that means you're lucky. <laughs> you're down there is great. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, um, but yeah, so from, from what I've looked into and stuff that, that, that's what my understanding was with that there's six there and the two there, but I, I always get people saying that they've, they're seeing different, um, alligators or crocodiles in more salty a lot more salty areas and i thought maybe they were just alligators go because i've heard that alligators nate was telling me this that alligators will go out into 
salt water sometimes to clean off parasites and leeches and go back in. Um, that's what we think. I don't know if that's been proven, but we see them down in Louisiana. Texas. I'll see them in the surf every now and then out on the beach. And then, but they, I don't think they move there. They don't let but, and that is the, the thought they trying to get rid of parasites. Is that, has that been proven Nate or do you know? I uh, do not know. I just heard that as hearsay more or less, but yeah, I mean, I've also right. heard they'll go into like salt marshes and stuff like that to go like forage for crabs at like low tide. And then they'll skedaddle out back out of there into fresh water during high tides. So. Well, in our area, that the, the crabs come up in a pretty fresh area, so they love crabs. Though. They do eat a lot of crabs. But yeah, I hear, like, uh, I hear like uh, uh, Ross now came in town, uh, like Brazil and Uruguay will go into like hypersaline marshes to go chasing after crabs and stuff like that. Wow, you know what that means? That that tells you what a great uh, food source that is for them. It's not, they got a lot of fat. Those yeah. crustaceans have a lot of fat. Yeah, I was so that's super interesting though, because if there are like transient, just like um, kind of single crocodiles moving around in the West Coast, that could explain some of the like the sightings of people saying that they're seeing crocodiles or alligators in in these really salty areas. I mean, it could still very well be alligators and stuff. I'm just hearing a lot of it in a lot of different areas, so it has kind yeah. of made me like kind of curious. So that. I heard that uh, 10 or 15 years ago about the animals that are on the West Coast. They move a lot and, and maybe it's because of lack of suitable habitat. Maybe they're, you know, they're moving around trying to expand the population. You know how they move into other, you know, like salt, like salties do or like, you know, American crocodiles do. And, and they're trying, uh, trying to find a new area and they, they don't like it until they go back. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, because we, we were having a conversation about this uh, a little while back with someone because we're, we're wondering why there's more crocodiles on the west coast or the east coast because there's more mangrove estuaries on the west coast um although the area that they're found is like a large area of mangrove estuaries on the on the east coast it's like the only really area on the east coast that they have probably more freshwater influx into the into the into the estuaries on the on the south and east side i bet you that would make sense because there's a lot more canals over there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got more river systems that flow into the west side, right? You got the Everglades going south, mm. and then I'm, yeah. I'm not sure what you got. I mean, way up, way up north, you got a bunch of fresh water coming in. Right. Um, I don't know about in the middle. I'm not sure, but I bet you there's more uh, fresh water influx uh, mm -hmm. in those estuaries. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah, because I get people asking me all the time why there's more crocodiles on the west coast or the the east coast and not the west coast. So always wondered. I, I'm not sure why. But yeah, anyways, the whole pretty nice power plant over there too. <laughs> if they yeah, get yeah, cold, the, they go to Turkey uh, Point. Was that the uh, <laughs> Turkey Island? Hang out. Or... I know that. <laughs> Is that the uh, Turkey Island power plant or Turkey Point? Tur Turkey Point. Yeah, my bad. Yeah. Uh, again, yeah, non-native but... Floridian. Yeah, that's a beautiful the, the, place. The whole uh, the whole point of bringing that up was that the the lady was like, I was saying that there's no crocodiles in the West Coast, just to you know, and then they're like, right. I, think there was, I thought there were some, and then I, was, I explained that there's there's just a stagnant population. There's a stagnant population that you know will grow. It's all females, and they're like, right. But isn't that what they said in Jurassic Park? But they ended up breeding anyways. <laughs> so then I had to explain the plot movie, the plot of the movie, and why that why they started breeding stuff there. Come on, come on, Matt. You know nature will find a way. 
Uh, yeah, but it was pretty funny. I, I could I I couldn't get my speech out because they kept asking me like Jurassic Park questions. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So, uh, so with some of your other uh, immunology studies with other reptiles, have you found anything else with any of their different groups? Found some interesting stuff with some groups of turtles. I did a study with some people up at uh, Natural History Survey in Illinois uh, and uh, found uh, that that alligator snapping turtles and common snapping turtles use similar but very but similar but distinctly different innate immune mechanisms which I thought was very interesting um, didn't expect to find that and then we found the exact same thing with the eastern and the ornate box turtles up on the on the Illinois prairies, uh, they found that they were using. Uh, these are pretty closely related species, you know, and uh, they were using different immune mechanisms primarily in their innate immunity, which I thought was pretty interesting, pretty cool. That is um, interesting. So, do you think uh, that maybe uh, it's heavily dependent on the? Um, the environment they're in then rather than like the common lineage. Yeah. I, yeah. I, it's gotta be probably habitat driven. I'm guessing, but I, I, I mean, that's all I can do right there. Cause I have no idea. I mean, we scratched our heads for a good, we're still scratching our heads on that. I mean, it's pretty bizarre, but it's pretty cool too. Yeah. That's super cool. So is, yeah. um, is your particular, um, expertise in immunology? Is that, uh, with like what, um, what what's like, I guess your forte when it comes to immunology, like the strength of it or like the mechanisms, mechanisms. Oh, that's right, you said that. Yes, yeah, so yeah, mechanisms. Yeah, so yeah. I I look at a variety of different mechanisms, and of course you can look at strength too. Um, right. but to me the the different mechanisms are what are, what are interesting. There's a lot of different. The immune system is, uh, <laughs> either wonderfully complex or horribly complex. If you're a student, it's horribly complex. But if you're, if you're, if you're a, you know, if you're a, a researcher, it's wonderfully complex. You can learn all these different mechanisms. And it's really cool, and and it's and that all these different mechanisms have crosstalk and they interact, and it's amazing. Um, this fun. I, you know, I honestly, the way I look at this research now. It's just a it's just a way to get me out in the marsh so I can collect samples. <laughs> I love being I love being out in the I love being in the field. There are not many biochemists. You know, most biochemists will sit in a lab and they'll have people catch them, you know, catch animals and take tissue samples. I, to me, the field I love me I love being in a lab, but I love being in the field, man. I am a I'm a I'm a field work whore. <laughs> I love being in the field. I really do. Um, yeah. So uh, with those uh, turtle studies, uh, you're mentioning how these, uh, you know, closely related species have similar but different innate immune systems. Uh, how exactly are they similar and how exactly are they uh, distinct from each other? Okay, well, so if you, if you, we, we've broken the immune system down into innate and, and uh, adaptive. So if you focus on the innate immune system, there's lots of different mechanisms within that innate immunity and one of the big ones the really big ones is called the serum complement system and the serum complement system is uh without getting too complex it's it, it can be activated in three different ways 
But once it's activated, uh, it acts like a cascade, almost like I would say our blood clotting cascade. In other words, so one protein becomes activated and it interacts with another one and activates it. And that becomes activated and that interacts with another protein and that activates that one. And so you have this large cascade and, and what it, it ends up doing is it ends up acting, uh, uh, activating this one protein and it inserts into the outer membrane of, say, a bacterium. And that acts as a binding site for a second protein, a third protein, a fourth protein, a fifth protein. And you build this large protein structure in the outer membrane of, say, a bacterium. And it causes a, uh, it, it causes a, uh, a hold to perform. It's a pore forming pump. It's a, it's, it's a very uh, distinct manner in which these proteins interact and it forms a big hole in the membrane and it lets all the all cellular contents out and the water rushes into the cell because the salt concentrations are higher in the inside and it, the cell swells and it just and it kill it bursts it kills the bacteria or, or the so and so the the mechanisms i'm speaking of which that are that are different and say the two different kinds of snapping turtles Remember, I told you there are three different ways this system can be activated. One of them primarily uses system A, and one of them primarily uses system C. So the result is the same. You get the, the, the activation of serum complement, but they're using very different mechanisms, um, which was, to me, a little bit surprising. I mean, it's not earth-shattering, but it was surprising. It surprised a lot of people. Yeah, so that's actually a pretty interesting uh immune uh, system defense basically just drill a hole in the side of bacterium kind of what it does yeah yeah and so in fact that's what i'm looking at right now i told you in that in the cotton mouth i'm looking at that serum complement protein system huh um are they so is it pretty so obviously those are different but do you typically find it to where more closely related species are it's typically similar or is that something that's I, with all the, newly yeah, with all the crocodilians, with all the crocodilians, I found it to be very similar. All of them. I've, I've looked at basically all of them. Are you going to look more into different types of turtles and see if, if uh, kind of a lot of turtles kind of uh, diverge a bit or? Yeah. Yeah. More there's, there's been a, there's been a, a talk am amongst a couple uh, of my colleagues that want me to kind of cast a broad, immunological net over a broad selection of, of different turtles phylogenetically and, and, and build up kind of a map based on what I'm seeing. That would be super interesting to, to find out how that works out. Yeah, it would be. It's good. Sounds like a lot of work to me, but hey, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, who's going to fund it? You know, who's going to fund it? But right. that, that might be something that might be something that the NSF would, would be interested in funding because the NSF likes to likes projects that, that cast a broad net and, and answer phylogenetic questions. They like that kind of stuff. Instead of just working on one little species, you know, I mean, you're now, in your little corner of the world. With um, all these immune systems that you're studying, especially with like crocodilians that have really strong innate immune systems, um, is the, are there any applications to um, human medicine? In regards to that, oh man, uh, we got some patents. Um, I isolated some small proteins uh, that were in the white blood cells 
of um, some uh, alligators, um, and we sequenced them, and we got some patents on those. But I, I just, and, and they kill. They're, they're very effective at killing bacteria. They interact with the outer wall, and they kind of, kind of like the complement. They tear holes in the wall. They're small little proteins. But I don't know if they'll ever make it to market. Any kind of, we're looking at that. But the problem is, you know, if, if I take proteins that uh, are non-human and I put them in your blood your your immune system is going to react and, and you know you're, you're going to go into anaphylactic shock and right. you'll your fever will spike to about 108 degrees fahrenheit and you'll go into seizures and you'll die um although these proteins will probably cure whatever ails you but you know but then you're going to die this horrible death so you know um so it turns out that our immune systems uh kind of have a surveillance system and if you if you can put drugs into our our bodies, human bodies, if they're under a molecular weight of about a thousand, and and they kind of slip under the radar, if you will, you know stuff like penicillin. But these these are about four and a half thousand. So you know we think that potentially that they that these proteins could potentially cause anaphylactic shock, and they wouldn't be any use. Although you know I I still feel like you could put them in ointments, um, and and for skin afflictions, things like that, using externally, you know, for instance, uh, if you know anybody, uh, any serious diabetics, they'll get uh, lesions on their lower legs and stuff. And these lesions, they don't heal very well because they have compromised circulation and they often get really infected and they can end up losing limbs. And I'm thinking that because the circulation is not getting their immune system to this, that maybe we could put this, this, this stuff that we have into an ointment. They could rub it on there and it would help stay the way infections and help save limbs and things and lives for that matter. So, um, yeah. Um, speaking of diabetics, we actually, had, a while back, we had actually had a guy on who developed uh, treatment for type two diabetes from Gila monster venom. I'd ask him how heavy those uh, molecules were. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I've seen that research and, and uh, yeah, um, that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. That um, came out of Arizona State. Didn't it? Uh, it was actually a private market research. Was it? Okay, I think I know one of the guys who was involved in that. Yeah, the guy we were talking to was named uh, Andy Vick. Who? Andy Vick, V I C K. Yeah, yeah, I've heard the name. I don't know him. Um, is so this may sound like a dumb question to to some uh, expertise in biochemistry and immunology, but is there a way to, so you're saying if you took the crocodilians, put it in humans, they go into anaphylactic shock because the body doesn't recognize it as its own. Is there a way to, I guess, in layman's terms, fool the body, even it, it's 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 not a foreign cell? Well, I, I, I don't know if there's a way to fool it, but I know that there's a way to use it. It's pretty drastic. Like, say, for instance, uh, if you're a patient that has to go in for an, an, uh, and you're going to receive an organ from an organ donor or from a cadaver, whatever, uh, you know, there's always the chance of rejection for that. And so what they do is they'll go in and temporarily obliterate the patient's immune system, just blast it and take it offline and put that organ system in and let the body adjust to it. And then over months, 
bring their uh, immune system back online. Interesting. And, you know, I, I suppose that if you had somebody who was lying, of course, we, I mean, we have people that are lying in hospitals right now dying as we speak of, of infections that we could have, you know, 10 years ago, we could have cured easily, but there's so much resistance now um, to, to uh, all the antibiotics we have. But if somebody was laying in a hospital dying and, and they, nothing was working, I guess you could blast your immune system, fill them full of this drug, as long as it didn't do any harm to their own cells and kill the infection and then bring their, you know, treat it like an organ donation. It's pretty drastic, but if it would save a life. Be worth yeah, it. well, what made me think of this, and this is obviously on a larger scale, so with being on Moscow, I, I doubt it would work, but... Um, Heard of with going on the the organ rejection thing? How they're they're researching like stripping the organ of its cells and then growing cultures of your own cells on it so that your body yeah. can't not recognize it as its own. So, but I, I'm guessing that's like what you're talking about is probably too small scale to do anything like that. Yeah, well, I'm just talking about going in and taking the patient's immune system well, offline just flooding their veins with, you know, with, with this protein killing everything, but, but you, you might have to use a high concentration to get everywhere. And then the other thing is you have to be careful about, you know, when you do, when you do, uh, uh, trials, like clinical trials, you know, the first question they ask, is it, is this antibiotic work? Is it effective? The first question they ask is, is there any toxicity to humans? So, so you know, I don't care how good an anti-cancer drug or an anti-anything drug is. If it does liver damage to you or does some other tissue damage, it's not going to make it to the market probably. So we would have to make sure that whatever protein I had from an alligator, even if it was an effective antibiotic, didn't do any cardiac damage, didn't do any, you know, cerebral damage or whatever, or, or, or any kind of whatever, any kind of human toxicity would be bad so that would be the first step getting it on the market interesting okay that's called that's called phase one clinical trials by the way is how toxic is it to the to the to the to the recipient right the donor the, the yeah patient yeah yeah i used to work in a laboratory or laboratory that uh did that sort of research so yeah yeah uh matt you have any other questions um no uh no i don't think so uh anything else you want to say mark before we yeah uh, I just, I, I, we do have uh, i got one uh i we published a cup a cool paper that was sort of uh, uh ecologically based well it's not biochemistry well there's a little biochemistry in it but a couple of years ago about three four years ago we published a paper that showed that crocodilians can change color in, in, in response to color environment. Did you ever see that paper? What? I have seen I think it, yeah. something. Yeah, it was in Nature Scientific Reports. And um, and what we show, well, I tell you, do, do you know uh, uh, do you know Colleen Adams? Uh, no. She's down in South Texas. She came to me and she's like, you're a biochemist. Tell me what's happening. She's, she's a big uh, membranesis person, uh, Philippine crocodile. She says, whenever I pick up my Philippine crocodile, and they're, they're pretty bright yellow, she says, start, start turning darker. Whenever I handle them, they, I think, well, that's a, probably a stress response. You know, it's just, you know, stress hormones and some kind of color change. Well, maybe we could address that. But it turns out 
that if you take crocodile, not crocodiles, not alligators, take crocodilids of the order crocodilidae and put them from a dark environment into a light environment, they'll start getting lighter. And I found a way to measure the color of their skin. Um, but anyhow, that was pretty cool. Then you put them back in a dark tank and they start getting darker. And I'm talking about over the course of an hour and a half, two hours. I'm not talking like weeks or anything like that. It was interesting. And we, I did it with, you know, different color light. I did it with the blue part of the spectrum and the red. And I showed it was a blue part. And, and I showed I showed it was a hormone related. I, showed, I did some hormone stuff and showed the mechanism, did some histology. And it was a really nice paper. But then um, I showed that the alligators, the, the family of alligators didn't respond that way. And the gabialids did something completely different. But they, they changed in, in the opposite manner. So the alligators didn't change. But I, then I, we, we're publishing a paper right now um, that shows that al, the alligators, at least alligators, I've only done it with alligators, not caimans. But if you take an alligator and put it in a dark environment, put, you can take, you know, a, a sibling and put it in a light environment for over, over the course of, you know, four to six weeks, they will turn lighter. The alligator will get that kind of a golden brown and the, the the, the, the and then and the light and then the one that stays in the dark is more of kind of a dark gray right so it yeah. takes them a lot so instead of a hormonal thing that's really that's really quick this is more of a, a morphological change but then i started thinking about you know why why doesn't let, let me ask you this you guys are herpetologists i'm putting my air quotes here um so you guys are herpetologists so why why do alligators lose why do they have an ontogenetic loss of stripes you know they're, they're hatched with these bright bright vertical yellow and black stripes and then when they get to adulthood for the most part they're a, a kind of a homogenous gray and black talk to me uh well i know that for the most part uh larger animals get in size they generally tend to overall lose more of their patterning and become more of a duller and more uniform coloring so that's just my be just a general rule, rule with biology with animals that I don't know enough about. Uh, Let me tell you something, Nate. If that's a general rule, there's something driving it, right? Yeah. So uh, maybe my guess great. is my guess would be that for an animal that size, uh, just that if you do have that sort of coloring, uh, sort of striping and patterning, it actually would not help in camouflage and actually make them stand out more against the the that darker marsh water i mean when alligators get bigger they move out more to more open water whereas in babies they're more in like you know uh marsh grass and stuff like that that, that is exactly one reason i believe you're true because so, so like when, when you're small you got these vertical stripes and because they live up in the in the reeds and the cattails and the cane and 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 that that emulates you know the the shadows and, and the yeah. vertical reeds. and then when you move out to open water it behooves you to be more of a generic grayish black. You're right. Yeah. But, but what about, what about thermal regulation? So let me, so I started thinking about as you get larger and larger and larger, your, your, your surface area to mass decreases drastically. So a large mm -hmm. alligator has far less surface area per mass. So mm -hmm. I thought, well, I wonder if that, because if, let's go back to what we were thinking about with, with uh, alligators. Alligators live in a damn cold. It can be pretty cold. Yeah. And so thermal regulation can be a struggle at times, right? 
So what if they're losing their stripes like this so that when they get larger, they can, they can thermoregulate more efficiency. So what we did is we collected up uh, a whole ontogenetic range from hatchlings all the way up to 10 foot plus alligators right here in Southwest Louisiana and South uh, East Texas. And I measured how bright their stripes were on their tail and on their flank on the side for the whole ontogenetic a couple hundred animals. And then I went down to South Florida down with Frank Mazzotti's people uh, down in the Everglades. And I, I did the same thing down there. And then I went way up to um, South Carolina on the Santee Delta at Yawkey, uh, uh wildlife area uh, with Thomas Rains uh, and did some animals up there at the Northern part of the range. And it turns out that at the Northern part of the range, those hatchlings, the yellow is darker and they get darker faster. They lose their stripes mm. over their ontogenetic range much faster than say animals in South Florida. So I think that lends a little credence. And, and this is getting back to the, you know, the, I, I know just enough ecology to be dangerous, but I don't know much ecology, so. but I think that's pretty cool that, that um, this is the first, well, and, I, and once again, I don't read all the literature, but this is the first instance I can find where, uh, this ontogenetic color shift is due to thermal regulation because as you get larger, you, you lose that surface area to mass ratio. So I think it's pretty cool to think about anyway. Yeah, so you had to make up for that loss in uh, uh, radiation efficiency by just making yourself darker, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you have less less surface area per mass, so got to be something. It could, it, it could, it could still. Um be the the camouflage thing in addition to it too because like so for instance oh no oh no i i think i definitely think it's both for sure yeah. i'm not i'm not uh saying it's just for that but i think uh, we don't typically everybody thinks camouflage and nobody really thinks about thermal regulation when they say that in, uh ontogenetic uh shift in color well and that could well, I was gonna say with, the, with the camouflage component it can cause it to um evolve quicker you know because the ones that are that are uh, better camouflaged are, are surviving more, so they're passing on their genes more, but those are also the ones that are probably um, um, with best basking efficiency. Yeah, with best basking efficiency later on, and so that, like, it kind of, like, like doubles the speed at which those two things are yeah. kind of evolving. Absolutely, yeah. Super. I mean, they, they live long with genes on, right? So. Right. Um, so the the color change in crocodilians, though, you said that's hormone based. Like, is that like so? That's like, um, that's happening over the course of like minutes. Yeah, yeah, uh, like an hour. Uh, you can see, and it's uh, going back to that study, and that's published. That's in uh, Nature Scientific Reports. Uh, if you Google merchant and, and and crocodile skin color or something, you'll you'll get you'll you'll find that paper. And it's open, I think it's open access, so anybody can see it. Uh, what, what we showed was that the mechanism is the light comes into the eye and it stimulates the production of a hormone called uh, uh, alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone. And then that goes and circulates to the melanocytes and it binds to the melanocytes, which are pigmented cells in the skin. And when it binds to them, it causes all the melanin in the cells to shrink back. And so the cell becomes lighter. 
And so we view, we view that as the skin becoming lighter because those melanocytes don't have that melanin, that pigment distributed out toward the surface. And uh, I've got a lot of good histology. My, my uh, collaborator, Amber Hale, is a wonderful histologist. So one of the things we did I, before, I said, well, I've got this idea that this light coming in the eye is stimulating this. So what we started doing, we took, we took uh, animals uh, that were bright. Uh, they were in the sun. They were in a, a light tank. And I taped their eyes shut. And they turned dark. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. And, you know, I, I wanted to make sure there were no other receptors. I mean, I, I, I taped, I, I left their, I, I taped their head because there's a pineal gland. I, I taped their, I, I would, I would, I, I wanted to look and see if there were skin receptors. Like, for instance, if you tape us, you know, we tan, which is a different response, but you know, you could, you could, you could show like a bandaid effect. And there wasn't any, the only, the only way it would affect is you tape your eyes shut. And then I, I did some things like I would shine blue light, like I said, blue light, red light, orange light, different colors of the spectrum. And, and we, and, and we did hormone assays and I showed that the animals that have the most intense color change are also the ones that produce the most hormone. Um, so it was, it was a neat study. I, I enjoyed that study. Um, so um, with that, uh, different lights of the color spectrum, were there any particular colors in particular that were, had stronger responses than others? That blue, the blue end of the spectrum. Yeah. Okay. That blue end, the red end, the red down there, uh, red, red and orange did nothing. And, and even in the middle, the yellows and greens really, it was that blue end that, that had, that did all the, all the work it seems. And you said stronger hormone production. Is that hormones across the board or just the specific one that? Just this specific one that was called okay. alpha MH, MH alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone. Okay, yeah, that was a that was a, a that, I really I was really proud of that paper. That was a good paper. That, yeah, and, and it all cool. started it all started uh, with Colette Adams coming to me and saying, "Hey man, what's going on with this with this animal here?" Colette, this, and she had this thing, and and uh, you know she, you know these people that work in zoos, man, they're keenly observant on animal behavior and, and things, mm -hmm. and I find that. I learned an awful lot. A lot of people dismiss me. Man, I tell you what, I learned a lot of, from, from zoo people because they, they observe. And, and, you know, everybody, I, I heard uh, another friend of mine um, uh, down in San Augustine uh, say, uh, San Augustine Alligator Farm, John Brugan. You know John and Jennifer Brugan? I don't know if you know John. Yeah, we've had one um, before. Yeah, John, John, John and I were talking many years ago, and he was saying that um, – in fact, it was in 2004, I saw him present a, a paper in Australia uh, down at the CSG meeting, and it was really great about some behavioral stuff. And, and you know, uh, crocodiles are very secretive, and, and, and they don't like to be stressed. They don't like to be around. But I, I think that sometimes in a zoo environment, they get so accustomed to these disturbances that they almost, re they, they, they learn to block them out and they revert back to wild behavior, which is really interesting because I think sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes a lot of the behavior we see of, of crocodilians and zoos is dismissed as, oh, that's a stress or that's an artificial. But I think sometimes these animals over many, many years, because they get so old and, they, and they've been around these same disturbances, you know, year at day after day, year after year, that they, they, they revert back to normal behavior. And sometimes they're seeing these wonderfully secretive 
behaviors that you just can't see in the wild because these animals are so cryptic, you know. It's interesting to think about. John put that idea in my head about 20, 25 years ago, so it's pretty cool. John's a sharp guy, too. I like John. Yeah. Yeah, it was also really fun to talk to him as well, so. How was that? It, it was also really fun to have him on our show as well, so. Yeah, yeah. So, sorry, I was just kind of thinking about this color change thing. So, <laughs> so I guess that would be, because I was trying to think, I was like, because, like, is it, you know, different, sometimes animals, when they color change, it's not always for camouflage, like, for instance, like with chameleons. Um, so I was trying to think, because I was wondering if it was for camouflage, because it would, it's, it doesn't, it's not like a dramatic change. But then I was thinking about it. I guess it'd be when you're in the shadows, you'd want to be darker and there's less light. So you'd turn darker and then when you come out in the sun, you'll be a little bit lighter and the, the sun there going, shining into the eyes. And so they turn lighter. I yeah. Guess number, number one. Yeah. Number one, I think you're correct there. Or if you're on a white sand beach and then. I don't know, four miles away or for a couple kilometers away, you're in a, a muddy environment. I don't know. But yeah. but when you say it's much, you need to go look at that paper and look at the photos I took. Holy yes. cow. You know, Kirk Harbsmeyer down in uh, down in Tampa area, Lakeland, um, I used some of his mendorensis, some of his uh, Philippine crocodiles. And he had two, he had some beautiful, beautiful crocodiles and and uh, they're, I mean, these mentorenses are bright yellow. They're just mustard and beautiful animals. And I took one and put it in the dark for three hours and took it, took its sibling. And these are probably five foot animals, five and a half, something like that, I think. And I took the sibling and put it in the sunlight or, or you know, in a, a light environment. And then I took a picture of them together. And uh, I think the picture makes it look more than it is, but one of them looks yellow and one of them looks black. <laughs> it's amazing. Some, some some species change more than others, and one of the ones that really changes a lot, the two that change the most I saw are Moralets crocodiles in Mexico. Moralets really change, and, and, and then uh, the Philippine crocodiles uh, are, are, are really, really uh, change quite a bit, too. I also find it super interesting that all these, all these animals that color change do it different ways. Like the the crocodilians do it through hormones. The uh, chameleons are using retophore crystals, and like yeah. octopus are using chromatophores and stuff. So I, I just find that incredible that it's there's three different mechanisms for causing color change within you know different different animals. Oh, it's I bet there's more than that. There's probably more than that, but you're right. Oh, yeah, yeah, and absolutely. I, I really think it depends on it depends on why you're changing colors and as to how you change colors. Cause you know, if, you, if a chameleon may need to change colors instantaneously or like a, an octopus or, 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 a, or a squid or something, you know, and, and so they need, they need to change these chromophores and, uh, and, and block and, and, and expose these chromophores. Whereas a crocodile probably doesn't have a, a need to change color instantaneously like that. Right. But then yeah. that, it, it's a, it's over weeks <laughs> and it's not as drastic as, as much either. So, and with, and with chameleons too, a lot of it, the color changes for communication. So they have to have a wider range yeah. of different colors that's, to, yeah, to communicate. different true. things. Yeah. A lot of, probably a lot of breeding and, and territorial stuff and whatever. Absolutely. Wouldn't that be cool if we could do that? Say it one more time. Wouldn't that be cool if we could do that? <laughs> oh, right. That'd be so cool. <laughs> 
That'd be so oh, cool. Oh, we already do. Just start talking about politics at Thanksgiving dinner. You'll see people's face change to red. So, yeah, right. <laughs> you, so, then you'd really have your heart on your, you know, your emotions out in your sleeve because everyone would be able to tell, like, <laughs> your feelings. Would <laughs> be a lot. You'd see a lot of people, a lot, a lot more long sleeves and jeans and stuff, and rather than shorts and flip flops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um. So you mentioned that with uh, Gaviala, so like uh, Gary Owen to Misma, that when they're mm -hmm. exposed to, you know, being put into lighter and darker environments, they do the inverse of crocodiles where they're putting like a light tank, they turn darker and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, do they do, do they do the same uh, hormonal process with that? I think so. Yeah, <clears throat> I do. I did the same. But it's really weird. Um, the the false Gary when when ex and this is this is really odd um but when exposed to light its belly goes from a creamy white to a dark ashy gray in the, in a matter of 30 minutes wow so think about that one that was the false scary that you said yeah that's from this huh huh Trying to think what that's hard to explain, but the only way we can explain it is you you find these animals in these these uh, really dark dark peat moss swamps down in Borneo and in, 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 in Malaysia and Southeast Asia down there. And so imagine if you're a, some kind of predator and you're oh oh and by the way it only occurs in juveniles. If they get over say like a meter, uh, that response tends to fade away. Huh. So imagine you're uh, you're a small uh, tumistema, I'd say maybe you know for for uh, point point seven point five meters, small you know a couple feet, and you're sitting in a peat swamp and you're on the surface and the sun comes out, um, you might not you you might want to blend with the water more, uh, you might be less silhouetted if you're dark. Because you're in that dark, dark, clear peat, tannic uh, stained water. That's the only way we can figure it out. I, I, there's no other explanation other than that. And I don't know how, I don't know how legit that is, but that's the only thing we could figure. It's strange, though. It's a very, it's kind of an opposite of what you think it would be. Yeah. But 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 if you think if you're looking up at them, uh, if you're backlit in dark water. That, that you, you being white maybe make you stand out more. Whereas if you're dark, you may. And when, when I say, I mean, the, the difference there is fast and startling. You can see it happening with your own two eyes. It's amazing. It's amazing. Wow. That's the color change response I've seen in any crocodilian. I, and I did all the species. Um, it, I did all the 23 species, 24, I think. Yeah. It's only. What, on Matt, the, now? Sorry, I was going to say, it's only on the belly. Well, no, they also they also have the other response, but the belly shows a startling change. I see. I got you. Okay. Interesting. That's super interesting. So that, that was actually discovered by a friend of mine, Agatha, over uh, over in uh, she's a European. Um, she did a great study on that for her master's thesis. Um, is there any like me mechanistically anything different with that that causes the belly to have that stark that that you're aware of that has that to have that quick uh, change? I, it, it, I, I, I don't, 
I don't think we did the, the mechanistic. We, it's, it's difficult to get blood from those animals because they're so valuable mm. because yeah. they're so, they're, they're, they're so uh, endangered and no one really, it's, it's difficult to anybody, for anybody to, to allow you to do studies with them in the dark and in the light and draw blood. Uh, I was really lucky to be able to measure the color change uh, down in the San Antonio Zoo because I have friends down there that, 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 you know, that allowed me, that, that trusted me with their animals. And yeah, shout out to San Antonio Zoo personnel. So thank you so much. <laughs> awesome. That's super interesting though, man. Yeah. Go look at that paper. It's really, it's really was a, a very uh, fulfilling study. I liked it. I liked it. Um, I liked it. I liked that study because that study originated with zoo people um colette and 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 uh and you know and jennifer Brugin was actually an author on that study she she helped me and john allowed me to use a lot of the san augustine animals and um and then kurt harbsmeyer uh down in florida uh allowed me to use a lot of his animals and, and they were really the people who brought this phenomenon to my attention and, and it was really uh kind of neat i like i really like publishing and, and doing science with people who who um, who aren't, they're scientists, but they're not traditional scientists. And they always have a fresh perspective. And it's, they're always, uh, they're always fun to work with, you know, because they do different kinds of, I'm not going to say a zoo people aren't scientists, man, they're science, they're full on scientists. But, but it's, it's more, it's a lot of observations. A lot of them don't have um, experience or they don't have the opportunity to do um, what I call experimental science. But man, they're, I find that zoo people, are incredible at observing and their powers of observation. They have to, because they have to be in tune with their animals. They got to know when their animals are sick, when their animals are stressed, when their animals are healthy. And they, they, they're just so in tune with their animals. And it's uh, really interesting to work with, with, with people that are uh, in, in the zoo atmosphere all the time. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, I do these kayak tours on the side and just doing that a lot of, there's a lot of animals I see free especially dolphins and they're the resident dolphins and you see them a lot and you start to figure out different personalities and you, I can predict sometimes yeah. like I, 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 I blew these people's minds cause I saw this dolphin. I knew what, what it was and what it was doing. And I predicted where it was going to go because of that, because it was going way too fast for us to kind of like take a look at it. And so I went around a thing and took a shortcut and actually like, as soon as I got there, they arrived right there. And it's pretty cool. So, like, just that, like, you can kind of learn their behavior. So, like, like you were saying, zoo people are with their animals all the time. It's, yeah. You know, it's incredible what they can learn and how in tune they can be with the animal and what, what they can observe and the little subtleties that you wouldn't necessarily notice. I always say that I, I think a turning point in my career was when Kent Vliet invited me to speak at that that crocodile advisory group meeting in San Antonio with the zoo. And I, that was my first time I really got to meet a bunch of zoo people and started making personal associations. And then, you know, more and more, and, and I, you know, these people got to trust me and they let me use their animals. And I, I just, I learned so much when I'm in that, and with those people in that environment, they, they've got so much to offer the science. It's a, it's really enriching for me to interact with people that, that work with these animals in zoos. It's great. But it really, it opened up a whole new world of using zoo animals for, for research products. Animals that, you know, you just can't go out, you can't go out and catch tomestima in the wild, hardly. 
Yeah. You know, you may go out there for three weeks and see two of them, and they mm-hmm. don't allow you to touch them hardly. You know, it's just it. You know, how else are you going to do uh, a study with with all twenty three crocodilians? Other than say go to you know, I and mean, I tell you, another other people that have been really great are the people up at Phoenix Herb Society too. Those guys have been really great at letting me use their animals uh, up there. Uh, and the questions matter. No, I think I'm a. I, th- I think uh, I think I exhausted all the questions. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Mark, thanks for coming on the show. And like you said, go ahead and look up that article about uh, crocodilian color changing. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, my video wasn't working today. I'm sorry, I had to do it. Uh, when my audio wasn't, nothing was really working. So I apologize yeah, for that. Yeah, I'm we just posted out though. So yeah, we only post the audio anyways. So okay, good. No one wants to look at me anyhow. So <laughs> same here. Same here. That might have been a blessing in disguise for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Cool. Well, we appreciate you coming on. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. It's great to meet you, and uh, good luck with the, everything. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Watch, you out that, watch out for that cottonmouth paper next next year. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds super cool. Take it easy, guys. Yeah, you, you too. too.